0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Happy Monday. Before we dive into all of the craziness, before we go down the crazy hole, uh, we, we do need to... I think take a moment to remember the passing of Bob Dole, because it feels like more than just the passing of a major political figure, it kind of feels like the passing of an entire political tradition. Uh, And we are joined today on the Bulwark Podcast, once again, by our good friend David Frum, a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, Welcome back, David. Thank you so much. So good to be here. So let's talk a little bit about Bob Dole, uh, who led such an extraordinary life, but really does feel like uh, like a creature from a different political
1: era, doesn't it? Yes, he really does. We need to think about what that generation of leaders that uh, experienced the Second World War as soldiers had in common. Um, I'm not talking about the Eisenhowers who experienced it as commanders, but, but the, the generation of um, Kennedy, Nixon, Ford, Dole, uh, Bush, the people who actually, the elder Bush, what, what did they have in common? Some of them, like Gerald Ford, had been isolationists. But what Hmm. they had all experienced, Ford had been a member of America first. But what they had in common was they had seen in the years 1940 how little work it would have taken for the United States to avert the giant calamity that overtook the world. Mm -hmm. And then they paid in mud and wounds and suffering and fear the price for the country not acting in time. And they carried that memory through through the rest of of their lives. I mean, the Ford example is pretty striking. That like he he had been a member of Amer- America first. Um, he then uh, was he was in the navy, I believe, um, and then he came out of the navy and ran, challenge, an isolationist congressman in the um, Republican primary as an, as someone who belonged to this new generation of internationalist leaders um, that understood that uh, the, the peace of the world needed to be kept by the United States or. Other young men, like they had once been, would be in the mud and the and and the terror and the fear and the pain.
0: You know, it's interesting that that I had not realized that Gerald Ford was an America first until I read the book. Uh, I think it was those Angry Days, uh, which, which talks about the the whole Lindbergh era, the America First era, and and all of the folks who th- that were able to were well, able to were forced to change their minds, uh, and uh, and and who you know, went and and did make these tremendous sacrifices, and also. I think adds to the incredible seriousness of that generation. I mean, you know, if if there's one thing that that I think seems to characterize the through line of our politics today, it is the deep unseriousness of people like you know the Thomas Masseys of the world and you know, all the post pictures of themselves sitting in front of a Christmas tree with big guns. Um, you know, he's sort of playing at soldier. When people like Bob Dole, I mean, he was the real deal. He was the real thing, and you you could never imagine him being so frivolous so light so performative as as the political successors
1: today well i i've known people in this country and others who have been through combat um including some in uh, my wife's family is a very military family and and one of the things they all seem to have in common when they return is they never want to pick up a gun again um uh it's, it's, it's 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 got no good it's got no good associations for them uh it's a tool that you have to use but the idea that you'd go flex with it and pose with it and strut with it. And I I, I can hear my, my late father-in-law, who was uh, served in the Canadian Navy in the Second World War and then on the ground in Korea through three years, hmm. you know, what he would think of this. I mean, he, he knew firearms, and he retained one as a collector's item, which had been his father's service revolver during the First World War, which he disabled. Um, but the idea that you would send a Christmas greeting, uh, his, his view was always, um, if you... If you'd actually seen what you're pretending yeah. to have seen, you wouldn't want to see it again.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to drag you down um, into uh, in, into my discussion of the Massey picture as being the equivalent of, of sending out a dick pic. I'm not gonna not gonna sully you with all of that. But there is that performative quality to all of this that that you know real real men don't feel the need to send out pictures of of their stuff. And and this yeah. is, I guess, the other thing about Bob Dole, though is. And, and I think he's being remembered as somebody who took public policy and governance seriously. I mean, he was, he was a fierce partisan. I mean, he was not, he was, he was not a cuck in any way whatsoever. He was a fierce partisan, but he also understood uh, the need to get things done would need to compromise. And at bottom he was fundamentally a patriot. And so the yeah. the, the kind of tribal politics we have now was completely
1: alien to the tradition he came from. Well, um, one more story about him and, and this goes to something with, so we don't, heroized unduly the people from the past they were the mm-hmm. same as us right um, they, they, maybe they lived in a uh, better environment but um so Jan, my colleague at the atlantic jan senor tells the story of co- um, covering dole on uh, the campaign trail in 1996 and um a woman rushed forward to put her baby in his arms and he just reacted with terror and and everybody who saw this would have thought oh bob dole hates babies mm. but of course what he was afraid of was his right arm couldn't lift any weight. And his left weight, his left arm, as he told Jan, couldn't lift much. Um, and he was terrified he would drop the baby. Mm-hmm. And, and he had this understanding that when he went out there, that he, had, he was playing a part. And she added this observation. Bob Joel is often much mocked for referring to himself in the third person. Okay. And Saturday Night Live got a lot of comedy out of that. But one of the reasons he did that was in his mind, there was me, Bob. And then there's this character, Bob Dole, who I have to go out and play. <laughs> <laughs> and they're different. And and right now, I like I'm at home. I'm, you know, got I'm in my socks. I'm watching the game. I'm just me. But then I have to put on uh, – I have to pretend that I can lift a baby. And then I have to be Bob Dole, that guy.
0: You know, I, I wasn't – during his career, I, I, I will admit I, I was not always a fan of, of, yeah. of his politics or his style. I really felt that he was sort of a man of the past when he ran for president in 1996. Yeah. But also, I I think it's interesting reflecting uh, about the way in which defeat did not define him, and it was not the end of his life. His uh, post-presidential run actually gave him a chance to become kind of a happy warrior, to remake himself. I mean, the fact that he was able to make fun of himself, I still remember that moment when he— was in the Pepsi commercial with Britney Spears. I
1: mean, yeah. that
0: was, that was His ability to sort of make fun of himself, not take himself seriously, was really endearing, especially given his kind of his image as sort of an attack dog during the Nixon years when he was growling at George Bush on television and everything. He was, yeah. he actually loved life and and was able to put things in perspective.
1: Yeah. You know, I've I've always disliked this phrase, the greatest generation, because I I think it was a way of Guilty baby boomers making it up to their parents for all the time they'd given them sass, oh, yeah. um, but without uh, uh, w- without facing up to the fact that I mean I, I just think one of the most profound things ever said about politics, of course, came from Lincoln, and I won't be able to quote it exactly, but I'll get it close enough. Uh, he, he's reelected in November of eighteen sixty four. And a group of serenaders come to uh, hail him at the White House. The Truman Balcony doesn't exist then. He comes out onto the the front step of the White House and he hears the serenade. And then he gives um, a little speech. And it being Lincoln, um, it's a philosophical treatise and it's kind of a downer. (laughs) And and he he says, um, in any future age, in any future national crisis, human nature will not change. And we shall have as wise and as foolish... As, as brave and as cowardly, uh, as, um, and, as, uh, and as good as as bad in that time as we have in this. And so let us study the incidents of our time as philosophy and not as hmm. wrongs to revenge. And people don't get better and they don't get worse. And so it's a reflection on us, and this maybe takes us to some points, is actually objectively other problems in American, the American past have been harder than the problems face now. Um, The Civil War was harder. The Great Depression was harder. The crisis of remaking the world after the Second World War, that was really hard. So what's our excuse? Why aren't we doing better? (laughs) We've got more resources, more ability, more talent uh, than ever before. We've got problems that, while serious, are not as bad as those at other times. And yet it doesn't look like we are mustering the kind of energy. And And again, not to belabor ourselves because Lincoln told us we are as wise and as foolish as they were then. But it we study the past as to gain wisdom and to do better,
0: and to and take the warning. So, all right, let me uh, switch switch gears here because uh, you're a staff writer of at The Atlantic, and The Atlantic has a truly terrifying cover story, which we don't have time to get into yeah. in great detail. Uh, Trump's next coup has already begun. Uh, Barton Gellman, who wrote a very, very scary story uh, before the election. Uh, writes the January 6th with practice, Donald Trump's GOP is much better positioned now to subvert the next election. Yeah. I recall I was an, uh, I would characterize myself as as somewhat of an alarmist uh, yeah. about uh, the attacks on democracy, what was uh, what Donald Trump was capable of. But I also remember when I read Barton Gelman's piece in The Atlantic before the 2020 election, where he sketched out the possible ways that uh, Trump might attempt to subvert the election. I did think it was over the top. I, will t- I didn't take it as seriously as yeah. I should have in retrospect. So I'm taking this very, very seriously now. So Trump's next coup has already begun. This is a frightening story, isn't it?
1: It is indeed. Um, and I, I, I hope people will read it and, and take it seriously and ponder it. Um, here, here's a thing to think about. During the Trump years, what we had to fear was I mean, Trump was as malevolent, as authoritarian a personality as has ever held high office in the United States. Uh, but he, that was mitigated. His his personal defects were mitigated by uh, some saving graces. One was his his ignorance of how the mechanics of government worked. Yeah. Uh, another was his lack of his utter lack of work ethic, and and one more was the general feeling among many Republicans, and not the principled ones like Liz Cheney, but the opportunistic ones, the weak ones, um, that. None of the, this probably wasn't going to work, and so you just didn't want to be associated with it against the inevitable collapse. And um, there was a good chance that Trump would end in defeat—a a fair chance he would end in prison. This could all go the way of Watergate. You didn't want to stand too close to him. So, what has has changed uh, since the first since that first experiment with Trumpism? Well, he does know better how government works. Back then, he thought it was enough to have an ally as attorney general. Now he, need, now he knows, uh, well, no, the Justice Department's a big bureaucracy. You can't just have your own personal counsel. You have to staff it all the way down to the third level. He knows that. Um, his work ethic probably has not improved much, but he is driven now by less complacency and more desire for revenge. But above all, it nearly worked. It worked yeah. better than anybody had reason to think. And so he he delivered proof of concept. And so you now have a generation of Republicans who are um, in existential terror, that uh, the country's changing in ways that they don't like, that um, their message doesn't resonate, and either they have to change the message, which they don't want to do, or they have to change the rules of the game, and the latter seems more acceptable. And they're working with him. And that's what Barton Gelman's piece is about, is the number of Republicans who have decided... My future is with Trump. Um, My future is with in the direction that Trump indicated. And we want to change the rules so that even if we can't win votes, the votes matter a lot less.
0: And it is interesting the number of sort of establishment type Republicans that are either willing to look the other way or go along with this. What do you make of former Senator David Perdue? getting into the Georgia governor's race uh, as the Trump endorsed candidate against the the incumbent governor who had uh, disappointed Donald Trump by not finding enough votes to overturn the election. I mean, David Perdue knows what he's doing, right? I mean, this,
1: this is such a strange race, because if you had known these characters three and four and five years ago, Brian Kemp, the governor, was a much more ideological person than David Perdue. Uh, David Perdue is just a a rich man who thought he would like to go into politics. Um, uh, David Perdue was in it for the ego gratification. There was nothing much he wanted to do one way or another. He was not. uh, Brian Kemp has done more things as governor than David Perdue ever did as as a senator. Um, And you might not like those things, but uh, Kemp is in, in a a funny way, Kemp Kemp is the kind of person who's in politics for the right reasons, even if you don't like the goals, Hmm. Uh, whereas Perdue is clearly in it is is a classic he's he's in politics to be something not to do something kind of politician but uh, he was defeated his vanity was badly wounded by that defeat and and trump finds these things in people mm-hmm. he can find that point of human or moral weakness um, and in Purdue's case that weakness is wounded vanity and so he's now making himself an instrument of trump's attempted revenge on camp. Now, it may all backfire. It may be that um, the result of this coming contest is to do enough damage inside the Republican Party to elect a Democratic governor in the same way that Trump elected two Democratic senators from Georgia. Uh, but but it's also possible that um, Purdue wins and that he then understands that his end of the bargain, and again, he's not a principled Trumpist at all, but he, his end of the bargain is to do for Trump in 24 what Trump did for him in 22.
0: Well, and also, one, once again, um, shows the Republican Party's difficulty in moving on from Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump, who continues to live in the past, uh, relitigating 2020, relitigating his entire presidency. And I'm sure you've heard this. He sat down with Mark Levin for an interview. And um, among many, many other things, uh, besides the usual sort of revisionist history, he talks about firing Jim Comey. And it's kind of an interesting little little side note where he seems to suggest that if he hadn't fired Jim Comey, maybe he wouldn't have been able to serve out his term as president. Let's just play this. Don't forget, I fired Comey. Had I not fired Comey, you might not be talking to me right now about a beautiful book of four years at the White House. And we'll see about the future. The future is going to be very interesting. But I fired Comey, that whole group. And now that group is coming back again. I mean, it's not Believable. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. Well, David, what is he talking about? That if he hadn't fired Jim Comey, they might not be sitting there talking about his beautiful book. What is what is he getting at?
1: Yeah. Well, Trump also has this has this view of the world of kill or be killed. So um, the idea that a president could accept that the head of mm. the FBI mm. does the FBI's job and and maybe something happens that is embarrassing or uncomfortable, uh, but you can survive it because that, he doesn't. Everything is is to him. You know, uh, an all-out knife fight. Uh, I, I, to me though, when I listen to this, it, it brings to mind um, a debate I've been having with my my friend of met now, more than thirty years standing, Andrew Sullivan, and we, we had this. that? We had this argument on his on his podcast the other day, and Andrew, who has who has been a fierce upholder of democratic norms against Trump, but he he's got this view. I'll say Trump did this, and he'll say we knew that, and I'll say and Trump did that. Well, we knew that. And I said, Andrew, the, the difference between so, you and me is mm-hmm. is that you think if it's not a secret, <laughs> it's not an issue. Um, yeah. that, that Trump's method, tr- Trump is, uh, have you ever seen the Penn and Teller uh, sure. show? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes. what, what, what Penn and Teller do, the thing that makes them such amazing ma- magicians is most magicians try to distract you from the trick. So Penn and Teller tell you the trick as they're doing the trick. Uh, And, and, and then there's another trick inside the trick. So they'll say, "Now I'm, I'm sawing, you know, I've always get mixed up which one is Penn and which is Teller. I'm now going to saw Mm -hmm. Teller in half. Now, the reason I'm able to do this is because he has his knees tucked inside the box. um, So uh, he's actually not laying flat. And then, and then there's another amazing trick. Well, Trump is the Penn and Teller of political corruption at every stage. He tells you what he's doing. So, Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm opening a hotel here uh, on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. And if anybody wants to do any business with the US government, whether they're a political party, whether they're a foreign government, they have to pay me a fee. And the more they pay me, the more attention they get from me. And I'm just announcing that. And there's a red carpet and my name's on the door. And in fact, I opened the meeting with the ambassador by thanking him for staying in my hotel and spending $100,000 on my business. And and it it can't be a scandal because if it were a scandal, he wouldn't have opened the meeting in front of the cameras by bragging about the $100,000 payoff.
0: (laughs) I I think this is such a good point because this is kind of one of his... One of his superpowers, the ability to commit these scandals in broad daylight in real time. And, you know, I've I've often thought that, you know, if we had discovered certain things, um, you know, later uh, that had been kept, you know, on tapes or in, or in secret documents, um, what bombshells they would be. But in fact, they were all laid out right there in front of everybody in the president's tweets in terms of obstruction of justice. He made no secret of it whatsoever. And yet there is this entire class of journalists that does, or, or, you know, anti, anti Trump folks who do think that in some way that's a legitimate defense, right? That, okay, well it can't be that bad because we,
1: we knew all of that, which is the Andrew Sullivan position. Right, it's just an example of how Trump wears us down with his lack of shame, and as he's doing right now to David Perdue, so he's done to the country. He changes us, Um, and he changes us also because a lot of things, as you discover, not everything is written down, not everything can be written down, and indeed in politics there are real costs to writing things down. You know, this is a very legalistic country, and so Americans tend to think if it's bad, it's going to be prohibited; if it's not prohibited then it's not bad. And so you have a lot of playing up to the line, uh, where in other countries or in different times, which were less legalistic, you wouldn't draw the line. And so politicians wouldn't try to go close to it. Um, And so so what, what Trump is constantly discovering is, well, there actually is no law that says a president cannot operate a business while serving as president. Mm-hmm. There's no law even that says the president – I mean there, there are certain technical restrictions. The president can't use the seal of the United States in his business, which a rule that Trump ignored. But that's not the important rule. The important rule is that the president not do the business and not pressure people uh, to use his business. But it's not written down because it's impossible to know how you'd write it down. Um, so you – know, yeah. Go ahead. So there's always there's – always, we had a lot of leeway with presidential relatives. you know, And every president has an embarrassing relative or two. But the idea of the whole first family would be operating their griffs from inside the white house with the president's continual blessing we can't write that down either
0: yes open i was just openly doing it so th- this this does lead to your your most recent piece where where you are dealing with the anti-anti trump journalists who are you know, trying to use the question, the legitimate question surrounding the Steele dossier to score points yeah. of, uh, you know, off of politicians and media institutions they dislike and basically saying, see, because there were all of these problems with the Steele dossier, which was, uh, you know, in, in, in large part discredited, therefore the entire Russia story is a hoax. And since we are going to have the return of trump 2.0 this is relevant to go back to this you you triggered a lot of folks by going in great detail back through the whole russia story making the argument that it wasn't a hoax
1: was it no um what happened again it all happened in front of our eyes and we know all of it there are no secrets here um we know that the uh russians made this attack on democratic party communications they also made an attack on republican party communications and either that was less successful or they chose not to use the proceeds we still don't really know the answer to that um now just think for a moment how audacious this is russia is a country russia is not china it is not a superpower anymore it is not in any sense an equivalent of the united states it's got a gdp about the size of italy's and it's got a military that is in in no i mean it's just it's not a first-tier power anymore so the idea that, that Russia would have the audacity to do such a thing, something the Soviet Union never dared to do, that's breathtaking. Why? Why would they do it? Why would they take the risk? Knowing, uh, they assumed, as, as most of us did, that Hillary Clinton would probably win the 2016 election. So, so they were not only attacking a US election, but they were attacking it in such a way as to visibly try to do harm to the likely winner, knowing that the likely winner would be keeping score. And, and would have it in mind. Why? why what, what? Why was it worth it to them to do it just this one time? And there was a big argument, well, was it that they just wanted to make mischief or was it something special about Donald Trump and the intelligence community and Senator Marco Rubio and others have said, no, we are now satisfied that they explicitly intended to help Donald Trump. Why? Mm. Why mm. was he worth it to them? Um, it seems crazy. And, and that's, that's the story. And then that takes you to the long history of Trump's economic connections to Russia, which date back at least to 2006, possibly farther. Uh, his seeking a giant payday all through the election of 2016, which he lied about. The signed letter of intent that he had to do a deal in Moscow, signed in November of 2015 and lied about. Uh, and then we have this strange thing, which is that everyone in the Trump campaign lied about their connections to Russia. And what is really weird about this is people lied about it even when they had nothing themselves to cover up. Right. Jeff Sessions lied to the Senate about meeting the Russian ambassador. Why? He had, he had, Jeff Sessions had done nothing wrong. Um, and Jeff Sessions, um, again, he's very conservative, but he's a highly honorable person with a great sense of the Senate. It would be painful to him to do something like that. Why? And, and he had no reason to. Or Michael Flynn, who lied to the FBI and got into tremendous legal trouble, he had guilty secrets of his own, but they didn't pertain. He had nothing, he had nothing especially to cover up vis-a-vis the Russia connection. So why? And I, I, it's, like, it's like there's a closet in the house, and there's a terrible smell coming from the closet. And everybody who lives in the house, and there's a body, and there's a person missing. <laughs> and everybody who lives in the house knows there's a person missing and knows there's a bad smell coming from the closet. Maybe it's just a raccoon. Uh, but the thing you know is <laughs> don't go near the closet. And, 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 if, and if the investigators come by, you don't know anything about the closet because nothing good is going to come from a, trying to open that closet up. And that and and so I go through all of this. But it, it ha- because, because it's not surreptitious, uh, people don't want to believe it. And one last and because thing. Because there's the people so that, much
0: of it, yeah.
1: There's so much. Of, and people also then, and th- this is one of my complaints about some of these anti-anti-Trumpers. They up the ante. Uh, what we 're looking for is proof of a criminal conspiracy in law you think, well you know American because American law is so draconian, the punishments are so draconian, the standards of proof are properly high, and again, our law is quite technical um that is that you can't be convicted just because of a you did something really wrong. there has to be a specific line of a of a statute that you violated before we send you to to prison. Mm-hmm. And criminal conspiracy has a series of quite technical definitions about overt acts, you know, know, could there have to be degrees of conscious understanding? Um, And the kind of like signaling from a distance, it might not amount to a criminal conspiracy. It might not be punishable by law at all. Uh, But it's politically relevant information and it creates a security risk that would in any other job prevent you from holding a position of trust or honor under the United States.
0: I thought one of the most interesting things about your article was to remind us all how much we did know about this, how much has been documented, that there was the Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russian interference that just laid out this factual record. And, you know, I follow this very, very closely, been following it for years. And this was, a, oh, that's right. This is there. Yeah. This is not this, not just the Mueller investigation. And, and, you know, I mean, just to go back through some of the things you just said, I mean, you know his involvement does go back to 2006, where Trump and his companies did mil- tens of millions of dollars of yeah. business with, with with Russians and other buyers, whose profiles raised the possibility of money laundering, and that more than a fifth of the condominiums sold by Trump over his career were purchased in all cash transactions. By shell companies. I mean, there's so much. 2013, uh, you know, Trump's pursuit of Russian business uh, intensified when he when he staged the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow and opened discussions for the construction of a Trump Tower in Moscow. And yet for years they were saying, nope, had no business with Russia whatsoever. I think in 2016 during the debate, no business whatsoever. And it, it was not only a lie, it is it is a documented lie. And yet we still have the folks who are Willing to carry water for Donald Trump, and as as you point out, are volunteering to help him
1: execute one of his big lies. Well, to to the point about the numbered companies, let's just think about how startling this is. Um, in the United States, there are lots of reasons why you want to own real estate in your own name. There's mortgage, or there used to be mortgage interest deductibility, which you you know again, you, which is a, something you can apply against your personal income tax. And there's also in Florida which is where Donald Trump built so many of his condominiums, there's a special advantage, which is uh, if you own uh, your condo or your home in your own name, uh, and if you declare Florida your principal residence, then no matter what happens, your creditors cannot claim your house. Um, uh, Your house is a credit, is a foreclosure-proof asset if you own it personally. So... There are huge incentives in Florida to own the real estate in your own name. It can't be seized by your creditors if it's your principal residence. So it's weird when people buy a Florida by any, it's it's strange anywhere in the United States, unlike other countries, for people to buy a condo through a shell company yeah. in ways that conceal identity. But it's especially weird to do it in Florida. And yet, and, and, and by the way, many real estate developers won't deal with those kinds of companies at all, because they have an urge. This could be hazardous. My bank is going to want to know. ask me, do I know my customers? And I, if I don't know them, might maybe be in trouble with my bank and possibly with federal regulators. So they, real estate developers tend to avoid it. So it's startling that Trump would have sold one-fifth through his career of his condos in a way that smells a lot like money laundering. And, and, that, and we don't know yeah. We don't know that they're Russians, um, mm-hmm. but it's just, it, it's a bad smell again.
0: There's there's so much else there. And of course, Russia, Ukraine, all of these stories um, are, are going to be coming back. Give me your thoughts about the intelligence reports that we've heard over the last few days that the Russia may be planning a full-scale military invasion or operation against Ukraine and what the implications of that would be for for us and for NATO.
1: Yeah, um, it is really alarming. And I'm hoping that the early warnings about it will deter Uh, the Russians. I'm hoping it also has a galvanizing effect on the new German uh, government, Uh, the Merkel government, which was... I've got an article coming up in The Atlantic. One of Merkel's worst mistakes was she canceled the German nuclear program and thus made Germany much more dependent than it had ever been on Russian gas. And preserving Russian gas became her top priority on Germany's eastern border. And that made her an unreliable, friend of, of Ukraine. There's going to be a new government, uh, and I hope that they will take a, a different approach. And if a lot of Russian policies about driving wedges between the United States and its allies, maybe with this new German government, um, which is a coalition, uh, we'll be able to reforge um, some, some of the solidarity. Again, it always has to be remembered, Russia is not, it's an economy the size of Italy. It is not an equal power. If we are firm with it, they get the message. But there is always testing of a new president and there may be testing of Joe Biden. And we're in a very alarming situation and we want to not panic. We want to not be precipitate. We certainly don't want to blunder into a war by mistake. Uh, but we also want to send a clear message to the Russians that don't, don't even think of this. You simply, you cannot afford it. We will shut you down.
0: Okay. So since we're, we're, we're on the, the subject of, of, of crises, I'm sure you've seen this, this really alarming report in the New York times about what, uh, Afghanistan might be facing nearly four months since the Taliban seized power. They're reporting Afghanistan is on the brink of a mass starvation that aid groups say threatens to kill a million children this winter. Uh, So, I mean, give me your sense. I mean, this it's been bad enough, but we're now talking about the possibility of a humanitarian disaster really just of a scale that we have not faced in the modern world recently. Well, we need to talk to the
1: Taliban Um, and we've always needed to do that. We've needed to do it for a a long time. And the the question is, are they utter monsters or is there, do they care enough about their own people that um, they will work with the rest of the world on an aid program? And if they do that, that allows other good things to happen because you can structure the aid program in such a way that um, you know you uh, you do protect uh, women's women, the schooling of women and girls and, and you do do other things as well. Um, and the plan of isolating them—I mean, the United States chose to allow the Taliban to become the new government of, Afgan- of Afghanistan. That was an American choice, and so we have some responsibility in making sure that that doesn't lead to the worst possible outcome.
0: Okay, let's switch gears a little bit because I, and I mentioned right before we began this podcast, I was fascinated by a thread you had on Twitter, uh, trying to figure out the various um, ways in which certain things link up in our culture. For example, you know, the, some of the anti-woke folks becoming anti-vax, uh, how anti-vaxism has become kind of one of the new folk ways. And you had kind of an interesting point that I've never seen anywhere else. You're talking about the, the Daily Mail has a report. That when, when Donald Trump was in the hospital, he ordered McDonald's. Okay, which may seem like a you know not a significant story, but they had a picture of of Trump's McDonald's order, which would be two Big Macs, two filet o fishes, and a chocolate milkshake. And you point out that any vaxxers often jeer that only the obese need fear COVID. That what they overlook is that Trump country has not only made anti-vaccine a cultural signifier, it's done the same thing with morbid obesity as well. Remember Sarah Palin's mockery of Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign? And, you know, this sort of triggered when, you know, there was this period where um, healthy eating was mocked. Um, Any suggestion that people don't eat bacon was mocked. So talk to me a little bit about how these things connect, because- you know, sometimes it feels like the synapses are firing in ways that you don't comprehend if you're trying to think of this in a logical way.
1: Well, yes, the lo- it, it sort of a lot of this is effective. So the image in the Daily Mail story about the Donald Trump order, the source for that is Corey Lewandowski's memoir. Great. Corey Lewandowski talked uh, in, uh, about Donald Trump's uh, McDonald's enthusiasm. And by the way, he told a story. Of, uh, just to get a <laughs> sense of the kind of people these are. Um, uh, Corey Lewandowski told this story as a funny story. There, are somewhere in South Carolina, and Trump pulls over in his motorcade uh, to order McDonald's for everybody. And he sends in Sam Nunberg, who's an important mm-hmm. Trump aide and an arch enemy of Corey Lewandowski's, in to make the order. Um, and uh, so uh, he's got the list and he reads it all off. And Sam delivers his own order, which is sl- which is one of the non-standard orders. Hold the pickles, something like that. And the result is that, well, uh, so Sam is running back and forth to the car, bringing out everybody's orders, but Sam's own order is lagging a little bit. And so Trump shouts at him, Sam, get in here in the next minute. And Sam said, my, you know, sir, my, my order's not quite ready. And then Trump says, roll. And they're in rural uh, South Carolina, and the entire motorcade rolls off and leaves Sam Nunberg behind oh, to find his own way home. But the point of this is, not only is that not a very nice thing to do, but Corey Lewandowski reports it. Like, this is the kind of thing you might want to omit from your memoir. <laughs> he enjoys <laughs> everyone it, after, yeah. Yeah, Everyone afterwards is a little chagrined. Uh, sorry, tempers running high. We are, you know, we are hungry. <laughs> Corey Lewandowski tells it as if it's the most hilarious. And that's, by the way, the last mention of Sam Nunberg in the whole book. Well, that's wonderful. it. It's that we leave him on this. Like he, uh, He's Lewandowski's enemy. So, but that's, it's not this fanciful thing that Trump had these, you know, gargantuan orders. He, um, sometimes he didn't eat the bun. That was his diet. Diet movie. <laughs> but yeah. so, but I am fascinated. By this, the local big mac. How things link up, and the anti-vax, anti-woke is one that is. So I'm not going to use names here, but I you know who I'm talking about, and I think yep. many listeners mm-hmm. of this podcast, if they consume other podcasts, that there is a group of people who in 2014 and 2015 they might have had um, liberal or left wing backgrounds, but because uh, they they got offended by woke attitudes in the university, um, the lack of regard for scientific achievement. Uh, the, the substitution for, of ideology over um, honest inquiry, and they got they got pushed into this new podcast and Substack space where they campaigned against woke. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing how person after person then said, "Wait, when you left this because you were against this, the elevation of ideology over science, and now you are regarding Dr. Fauci as the arch enemy of the American people, and um, and you don't understand why." A scientist dealing with a new virus might have a different set of recommendations in the first 60 days after the virus emerges. Yeah, then you would have two years plus 60 days that, that, that science is a process of learning and you know more. Like uh, this argument well, why didn't you say at the beginning what you say now? <laughs> Yeah. Well, why didn't Newton tell us about post Newtonian physics? Right. I mean, liar. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's why, pretty much why it. Is yeah. Newton covering <laughs> up post Newtonian physics. <laughs> uh, uh, but but there's been this. Where does this come from? And the answer is obviously not logical. The answer is obviously psychological. Right. And and I think that that is what is going on with a lot of Trump world. There are psychological drivers of certain behaviors, and those are important. And I think. You and I, and those of us who got off the train at one station or another, that we think, well, you know why did we do it? I think the answer to that is often psychological rather than strictly logical.
0: No, I, I think that's true. You know, you you make a, ma- a reference to the way conservatism had evolved from the championing of ideas to a defense of folk ways. So, for example, guns under the Christmas tree, fried food on the table. This was a folk way rather than an idea. And so it does seem, you know, more like posturing and attitudes rather than anything that is coherently linked together, because there's there's really no connection between anti-wokeism and anti-vaxism, except perhaps, you know, a you know, what, do they think that they are being independent thinkers that are not going along with groupthink? I mean, is that the way it might work in their heads together? You know, that, that if all of these people believe and insist we believe X, therefore I'm going to be skeptical because I've rejected them on this other issue. Is, is that kind of the, where?
1: Well, I, I think some people would say that I don't buy that because if they say, well, the reason I'm I'm anti-vax, I was first anti-woke and now I'm anti-vax is because I'm a contrarian. I'm an independent thinker. So, Well, if you're such an independent yeah, right. thinker, why, why are you moving in a herd? Yeah. Um, because actually, we're not talking about one weirdo. And then then you might say, okay, maybe sometimes the things that make you brilliant in one way make you ignorant in another way. We're talking about a phalanx of people who have executed a pivot all in synchronicity. When Joe Rogan moved, they all moved. Uh, Or, you know, they're they're all on the same path. So there's something here that is, it's not about being contrary. I mean, it may be contrary, it may be oppositional, but it's not individual oppositionism. It's, it's, you're behaving as part of a group. I think it, it, so, so you need another explanation. I mean, I think part of it is who, who, to whom does anti-vax ideology most strongly appeal? And if I were to do a profile of the people I know who are strong anti-vaxxers, I would say, you know, it, it doesn't appeal to the um, truly ignorant and the utterly Mm -hmm. Right. Uninformed Because it's too complicated. Uh, there's too much to keep up with. Actually, you have to, you have to be somewhat informed, um, somewhat interested to be an anti-vaxxer. In fact, anti-vaxxers often are passionate. They often know more random facts right. it is uh, the than random, other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they, They've they, all they, done their own research. They've all done their own research. No, no, no. Um, but I think what they feel is they feel underappreciated relative to the people who are most appreciated. That is what, what irks them is hmm. other, hmm. as much as they know, as clever as they are, they are not regarded as respectfully as somebody else. And it's, it's a kind right. of comparative injury uh, that, that, that drives it. And I think that, that is something that goes on with, with wokeism. And wokeism, I mean, it, the reason it's so irritating is because there are parts of it that are true. It's obviously true that history of the United States is profoundly shaped by slavery um, in ways that continue to this present day. And the problem is not that that it's not true. The problem is it's it's not the whole of the truth. Right. And it's not as if some of the things that that people are telling us are are not things to learn from. It's just you have to set them in in a bigger context. And I think the anti woke the people are princi- that that, that uh, inability to say you know I'm going to take some and reject other. I'm going to sift through. Um. I'm I and the ability to see the world is something other than a fight. Maybe well, that's and also,
0: something. you know, and it's also exhausting. You use the word exhausting, you know, described describe uh, Donald Trump, you know, you know, part of these debates are exhausting. I mean, over the weekend, I was reading um, a long essay in the New York Times by a woman, I think from San, a journalist from San Francisco, who is, I don't know if you've seen this. She, she's writing about her little library, the little free library oh that goodness, she put yeah. in her name. Do you see the story? I don't know. If yes. I, 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 I'm, I'm a little stuck on this one because. So it's, it's it's this wonderful little library she puts out in front of her house in, in her neighborhood. And then she writes an entire essay about how when she looks out one day and she sees a white couple, and this is all we ever learn about this couple, that they are white, yeah. they are looking at books. And she is offended and she's angry because why are white people in her neighborhood reading books? And it's one of those where you go, okay, are you listening to yourself here? Um, and then the whole essay goes around to say that, You know, that that her reaction might sound like the reaction of racist, but she's not like them at all. This is completely different. She just doesn't want to gentrify. She doesn't want her little library to gentrify the community. But in the end, she completely dehumanizes this couple that just wanted to read books. And my main—I wasn't even going to bring this up, David, but it's part of it is you just go, I'm just exhausted, the argument. Okay, I understand. I don't want to get into an argument about gentrification or about who you wanted the books for. It's just do you listen to yourself, and do you realize how dehumanizing all of this is? Um, When I see these articles,
1: I sometimes think, I wonder— about the job interview of the, if the New York times has an evil editor who hires a deputy evil editor and says, your job is to go through the slush pile and find that will destroy the life of the author and enrage our readers. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 and the test is, is if, will this person, who write? who has it will they will they ever be able to live it down because if they can live it down it just keep going until you find the one they will never be able to live down. <laughs> and they could live to be 102 and people will be saying to them you wrote that stupid thing all those years ago and meanwhile and the whole point of this is to make our readers go crazy and and uh um, <laughs> yes and it works and, and it works and i i i, I always wonder Is the New York Times self-aware? Like, do they they read this thing and share the piety, or are they cackling wickedly?
0: (laughs) I don't know the
1: answer. (laughs) Well, can you imagine? Can you imagine if
0: you wrote an article about you know you and your wife setting up a little library outside your house, and then seeing some you know a, a black couple reading the book, and then you your initial reaction is to be angry and offended? Whatever the rest of the essay would be, I'm guessing that. It just, it wouldn't they're, be a good thing, you know? They're, 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 First of all, I can't imagine you writing it, and I can't imagine the New York Times publishing it,
1: you know? I, I, the, re- the reason I couldn't have this job, if it were me, is I, I, I just, just to quote, to, to quote another 80s movie, Ruthless People, there's a scene where, the, um, what's the name of the a- actor? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget his name anyway. He plays He's a, a nice person who's trying to be a bad person, and he's a stereo salesman, and he's the opportunity to rip off this gullible customer, and he can't quite do it. Um, and, uh, I I think about this. I just think like, if it were me, I'd get this op-ed and I'd be cackling and cackling and cackling. And at the last minute I would have the search. I just, I'd call the writer. Yeah. Are you really, really sure? Because it's good for us. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) But, (laughs) but maybe it's not, maybe you should just. Show it to your boyfriend or girlfriend or your mom.
0: <laughs> just yeah, or just somebody outside, your, somebody outside your bubble here. I mean, I,
1: I, I love it. You're really, you're yeah. really going to be sorry. <laughs> In about 24 hours, you are going to be so sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that the paragraph where she
0: explains how she's she's not the same as, you know, as other you know racial supremacists, you could almost feel that it was tacked on by an editor that said, you know, some people might actually think that you had a racist reaction to these people. OK, so you have your I, I wanted to ask you about your your pinned tweet since we're on the subject of the media. You write it irks me when people use the phrase the media to exclude the country's most powerful media institutions, personalities. Fox News is the media. So are Sinclair, Joe Rogan, and Ben Shapiro's Facebook feed. Quit talking as if we live in 1972 and everybody watches CBS. This is an underappreciated point. People talk about the media this, the media that. What are you talking about anymore? Right? right.
1: I, yeah. Yeah. No, we, um, look, we do live in a little bit of a gerontocracy. Oh, God. Yeah. And so and so, a lot of us are wandering around caring. We, we mentally live in a country that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and some of that is natural. Some of it is cynical um, that obviously there's uh, – one of the things I notice is uh, people who are in the Fox orbit, including Governor Rick DeSantis the other day, um, refer to the media they don't like as the corporate media. Yeah, right. Uh, as if Fox is like – an anarcho-syndicalist collective. It is also a corporation. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, many media institutions are owned by corporate forms. Um, it's absurd. But I, I think that, I mean, part of it is about sustaining a narrative of victimhood, but part of it is, look, there is something kind of parasitic about the way the Trumpy information system works, which is it wants to lock you, it's like a cult, it wants to lock you into uh, an information bubble. Do not trust anything else. Yes. And so uh, that, they, 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 they gain some credit and credulity by systematically locking the person away from anything that might offer them an exit, any way to check what they're being told. And so that although as powerful as they are, they therefore have to – they're in this relentless campaign against any other source of information that might cause a person to think twice.
0: Yeah, and, and, and also you know that, that constant uh, drumbeat that you know, we will tell you something, some secret knowledge that the rest of the media doesn't want you to know. That, you know, the New York Times will not report this story that's on the front page of the New York Times. Therefore, you need to get it from Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, et cetera.
1: Yeah. yeah. All of whom, of course, are simply commenting on things they, they read on the AP wire.
0: Exactly. David Frum, thank you so much for coming back on the Bulwark podcast and, and starting off our
1: week. Such a pleasure always to be joining me. Bye bye.
0: And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.